My name is Sean. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, thanks for asking me to share. Uh, or share. <clears throat> I just want to start out saying, uh, man, uh, you know, I owe this program my life pretty much. You know, it. Uh, I was. Uh, alcohol used to make decisions for me. Alcohol and drugs, and um, that's not the case today. You know, I've been uh, freed from the, uh, you know, prison of self and uh, alcoholism. And uh, it's a direct result of, uh, you know, turning my life and my will over to care of a uh, power greater than myself on a daily basis. Uh, You know, when I first got sober, you know, like it talks about in the books, the passengers on a, a you know ship after almost sinking the survivors. You know, I had that. I was on a pink cloud. I had that, like you know, it felt like I just escaped death, and I and I had, you know, and I kind of got got busy, and uh, you know, I got a sponsor right away. Started reading the book every day. We started a, a meeting at the rehab that I was at every morning at five a.m. We'd go sit on the porch and read the book for an hour share and uh you know through working the steps and uh you know staying sober calling people uh you know daily uh prayer and uh effort <clears throat> life is uh geez i couldn't even imagine you know like so much better today you know um i'm able to be a dad today i was a you know i was a hope to die alcoholic and addict and um you know i got to the point where uh, i got to the jumping off point and quitting wasn't an option you know and uh luckily i was saved by you know something greater than myself for sure, that uh, I see working in my life on a daily basis. And, uh, you know, sobriety is contingent upon the maintenance of my uh, spiritual condition today. And, uh, you know, I can't stay sober on what I did yesterday. You know, it's a daily, it's a daily effort. I have to do something for my sobriety every single day. And, uh, Sometimes it's just some prayer and sometimes I'm, you know, working a 10th step or, you know, making an amends, which uh, would be a, a bad day, you know. But um, the great thing about this program is uh, we don't have to work it per- perfectly. All I got to do is just work it every day. And, uh, you know, I've got tools today. I've been sober for uh, coming up on seven, uh, seven and a half years. And, uh, you know, I, man, I was a 30 day relapser, you know, like I'd get, I'd, I'd go to meetings and stay sober for 30 days and go out and stay sober for another 30 days and go out again. And I haven't had to pick up a drink in a little while now. And, uh, you know, uh, I've got a good network, a support group in the program of other people that I call and keep in touch with on a daily basis. Uh, I've got people that I can ask for advice that are clean and sober, that are working a program, who have sponsors. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm I'm grateful. I'm grateful to uh, be a member of this program and grateful to those that have been uh, uh, treading the path and uh, I'm grateful that we're not all crazy on the same day, you know, because, uh, you know, sometimes I'm going through it in my head, you know, I can get anxiety or sort of future tripping or whatever it is, you know, and I call somebody else and, you know, I can hear the truth, you know, and the truth is, you know, most of that stuff's a lie, you know, fear, most of that, most of those fears are in my head. And, uh, you know, I used to drink over that kind of stuff. I would freaking take a situation and it would just balloon and it would balloon into this big giant thing and you know 
I don't have to live like that today. You know, I get to live in reality. And, uh, you know, it says on the chip, uh, to thine own self be true. And uh, what that means to me is, you know, I get to make healthy choices today. And, uh, you know, I don't, yeah, I get to make healthy choices today. And, uh, you know, I have a choice today. And I didn't have a choice for a long time in a lot of the things that were going on in my life. And, uh, you know, I'm super grateful for that. And uh, grateful for meetings. You know, I hit like three to four meetings a week on Zoom mostly, and then some in-persons here and there. Uh, you know, I'm able to be a dad. I'm able to be, uh, you know, an employee today. I'm able to be honest, you know, and uh, live with some level of integrity. And, uh, you know, that was a, uh, not something I was doing when I was drinking and using. And I've learned that here, you know, practicing the principles in all my affairs, like it talks about in the book. And, uh, you know, I found that when I do practice the principles in all my affairs, like I, you know, I don't have the guilt and the shame and all that stuff that I had carried around when I was drinking and using, you know. And uh, what a freedom it is, you know, once you work the steps and, uh, you know, are working on, you know, maintenance, sobriety maintenance, you know, it's just like unlimited possibilities, you know. So, uh, yeah, thanks for asking me to chair. I think we're close to 10 minutes. And uh, yeah, glad to be Thank a service. Thank you. Thomas, alcoholic, uh, but I wasn't when I got to AA. Um, I've known Dave for 27 years, which is fucking weird to say that. I mean, I had a friend ask me, who's your oldest AA friend? And I'm like, well, man, there's so many from the Bay Area that I don't, I'm not around all the time, but... Um, Dave was, fuck man, I was like brand new and he worked at this pizza parlor in the city. And, um, I think he knew me before I knew him. And then we were at meetings together and, uh, yeah, just weird. Um, so I have not had a drink since March 10th in 1994. I live in Los Angeles now. Um, I've lived here for the past 19, 20 years, I guess. Um, it was always my dream to live in Los Angeles. I um, I was a Guns N' Roses fan, and I just had this romantic, you know, dream of, um, you know, moving down here and drinking Jack Daniels and um, hanging out with the rock bands and stuff. And, uh, you know, back when I was a kid, there was uh, there was no woke culture at all. Um, I grew up in the Bay, so... As you guys know, because you're in the Bay, it's really different than anywhere else in the world. I actually really believe that, that uh, I didn't grow up with any racial stuff. Like, I just grew up with everybody, and there were, like, crackheads in one house, Black people in the next house, non-English-speaking Chinese in the next house, gay people in the next house. And um, just all the stuff that became this big thing now was just like normal to me growing up. And, you know, um, and it was it was weird to leave the Bay Area because it's different everywhere else. I just don't know how to say it, but it's just somehow you guys are my people. You're in the Bay Area and uh, and I can say it. And um, I really like AA there. I really like where I got sober and uh, there's some weird shit down here. They sing happy birthday, like literally five, six times a day on average, you have to sing happy birthday in meetings. And uh, it's like being in preschool or something, you know, and doing the potty song or whatever. And they have all kinds of weird stuff. They have, uh, you know, it's just LA sort of like the cult Mecca of the world of all cults. So anything that's here gets culty, even if it's not a cult, which is not a cult, but 
but man, people do it. And, and here's the good news. Like, I don't, I don't have like a lot of investment in judging how people do AA. Like I really am like, okay with whatever somebody wants to do. If you want to like, you know, go to your sponsor's house and do their dishes and stuff or, or whatever, like, it's totally fine with me. Like, I don't need, um, I don't need to judge how everybody does it or if they're, you know, people have these, these four steps that they've added like eight columns to, and um, they even put their name on it. Like, this is the Jonathan method or whatever. And like, you know, um, I'm just sharing this because it's like, it's interesting. You know, when I got sober and Dave was there, they used to have whole meetings on the inner child. Like the whole meeting would be, and people would speak in the third person about their inner child, the whole meeting. And it was, uh, it was like really important, you know, and then they had men are from Mars and there'd be whole meetings for years on the men are from Mars, women are from Venus. And, you know, um, here's the cool thing. It doesn't matter, man. It doesn't matter what finds itself, finds its way into AA. Um, we have a basic text, right. And, um, and some people use it <laughs> and some people don't, and it doesn't even matter because they're all suggestions. This is not a heavy handed program, you know, and, um, when I got sober, I was absolutely despairing my life. And I'd come to the jumping off place where I couldn't imagine life with or without alcohol. And that's a terrible place to be. You know, it's a terrible place to be where you can't imagine continuing to drink or stopping drinking and using drugs. And, and um, it was terrible. And, and I woke up every day terribly sad that I couldn't, you know, drink and use anymore. And, and I was absolutely certain that I was going to fail at sobriety that because I'd been failing, even though I was only 19 years old, I'd been failing vigorously at it. You know, Sean, I appreciate your share, man. It was, it was just solid. It was, uh, you know, it's what we do. And it's, it's, I love hearing that man. And like, you know, people who are close to me, see the guys that I work with, you know, I sponsor, I sponsor a bunch of guys, but I also am like a friend to a lot of people. And I'm really on that. I really don't personally agree with the whole, I'm not your friend. I'm your sponsor thing. Because like, I feel like it says in the big book, your closest AA friend or a closed mouthed friend is who we can turn to for our fifth step. And I feel like, you know, if people don't know how much you care, then they don't care how much, you know, <laughs> I heard this guy say that in the meeting that I hated. I hated this guy. And he said that in the meeting one day and it hit me like a hammer, you know, that I, I was obsessed with the big book and knowing everything about AA and like speaking, you know, being the big book and stuff. And I was just like, when he said that, it just took the wind out of my sails. And I was like, wow, I really, he's right. You know, until someone makes that connection with you, that connection of trust, we can't do anything. It doesn't matter how much we read or if we, do step work or writing assignments or whatever it is. It just doesn't matter. Like you have to identify and then learn to trust someone. And even if it's just a little bit, you know, I could not stop. I couldn't stop. I, I tried everything. And, and when I read the big book, I really was suspicious that it was like, you know, some manipulative thing because they, they wrote all this stuff that was so similar to what I was doing. And, and I tried drinking beer only, wine only, natural wine, not mixing my drinks, not drinking at work, not drinking till 5 p.m. Or quitting time was 4 p.m. actually. That means you drink from 4 to 5. And uh, that's how it was in my family business, you know. And, and they were like, just don't drink till quitting time, you know. They would just stand there from 4 to 5 and drink. And, um, you know, I tried all this stuff and people way before I came to AA were like trying to help me and talk to me about what I was doing and how I was handling my liquor. Cause I couldn't do it, you know? And, and, um, you know, it was like, it talks about it in the big book so masterfully, right? We, we couldn't be satisfied being told that we were simply just maladjusted to life. Right. Because that doesn't explain everything. You know, I can, I can get better. You know, alcoholics can stop drinking. All of us can stop drinking. We stop drinking every morning. When we wake up, um, the problem is I can't not start drinking. And, and I'm so grateful that even by the age of 19, I had tried so many things that when I finally got into AA and got physical sobriety, 
and started to look at my drinking on paper with the sponsor that I was able to see what was going on. And I remember my first sponsor asked me, and you know, I don't ask every guy this, but he asked me to write down all the times that I had drank and things had gone well, like really well, like ideal. Right. And there were like four times or five times that were like, you know, very good drinking memories. And when I wrote them down, I realized um, that all those things had one thing in common. My, my amount of alcohol that I had access to was limited by outside influences. Like the cops took all of our alcohol and we only had one bottle left. And then I had a great night because I couldn't, I couldn't drink as much as I wanted to, right? And, and I always overshot the mark. And the times that I did control my drinking and drug use were physically painful. Like I was physically like upset that I was only using and drinking the amount that I had decided I was going to. It was like, it was painful. It was worse than, than not drinking at all, honestly. It was just like, so that physical craving that they talk about in the book, I really, really get that, you know? So I think I've qualified. Um, now I want to move on. Um, you know, I spoke, I don't know how this happened, but five times this week. Uh, two big men's tags, one smaller men's tag, a mixed meeting that was the young people's that was really like, Dave, if you come down here, this meeting was crazy. It had a fire in the middle. It was like 150 kids, not kids, but, you know, like under 30 down to down to young and how we used to be, right? How we used to be with all these big young people's events. And and it was really cool. And I saw kids that I knew from Alateen that my daughter went to Alateen with that were now in AA. And like, I saw people in... Uh, you know, I spoke at that meeting and, you know, I want to run through the steps really quick um, because I think it's kind of funny, you know, um, because down here, I don't know. I don't remember what it's like up there, but people talk about the steps in like a step worship kind of way. Right. And they point it. They're like, and those steps, those steps right there changed my life. And now I'm happy all the time, right? And there's one guy who has 55 years in our men's stag, and he's this fucking coolest guy, right? And he talks about having eight years sober, never working steps and sponsoring people. And that the minute he actually started working the steps, that he hasn't had a bad day ever since. He's had bad moments, but never a bad day. And that he, you know, is just so happy at 91 years old. He's driving, he's walking around, and he's happy, right? He has Emmys, and he can't spell, and uh, he was a cinematographer, and he's just this amazing guy, you know? And, and so when you're new, or if you're actually not new, you know, and you've lost touch with this deal, right? It's like, think for a second how ridiculous the fucking steps are. It's absolutely ridiculous. And in the 12 and 12, it talks about, you know, um, in the first step, it says, you know, no alcoholic who is still drinking can dream of doing these things, right? But think about this. So here's the deal. And I didn't, I didn't notice this. I don't know why, but I like really came to meetings and just like listened to what I wanted to and like tuned out a bunch of stuff, right? And I listened to the promises and I loved that because I felt like I wanted promises. I wanted things to happen, but I never connected like that the promises were about step nine and that I had to do steps one through eight. So I'm looking at these steps and I'm thinking I can just like read it and that's it. You know, that's all I have to do. Right. And, you know, but here's the thing. If, uh, if you haven't done the steps yet, um, it's worse than you think. Right. So here's the thing. Step one is you're fucked. You're crazy. Your life is fucked. Step two is you're, you're insane, right? Your, your mind is broken and you can no longer trust your mind anymore. So now your life's fucked, you're fucked, and you're crazy. And here's the best one. Now you're going to pray to a God that you definitely don't believe in, that you definitely have lost contact with, even if you did believe in God. But you're going to ask a God to help you. For me, it was insane to think of like God, because so many bad things have happened. to me. My brother had committed suicide on drugs. My father's house has been blown up with C4 and my younger sister was brain damaged as a baby uh, from that. He got into gun battles. He's an Oakland Hells Angels. He was like, you know, with Sonny Barger and all these guys, you know, blowing shit up in real life. Uh, what's it called? Uh, that TV show. 
I can't remember the name of the song. Sons uh, of Anarchy. Yeah, real life. And I know Katie, actually. Katie's one of us. Uh, Katie Seagal. And she's spoken for me a bunch of times. She's so cool. Such a cool lady. I've been in her house and everything. And, uh, and you she's know, that was... Wacky yeah, that was my... Um, that was my life. So now I have to believe in God step three, right? And here it goes. Ready? So make a list of everyone you've done something wrong to and everyone you fucking hate. Everyone you hate. And then tell all your gay secrets to someone. All the weird shit that you've done. The shit you're going to die with. Now you have to tell it. Now whatever you fucking did, you have to tell it. Um, and then talk to God more, which is like, you know, I don't know about you, but for me, step 12 was where it started to work. It wasn't in those initial steps. I was just doing it. I got on my knees in my sponsor's office and did the third step prayer. And I really thought like, I don't know. I don't think it was till I did my fifth step that I was like, oh, I'm not gay. I, I just thought, I just was so confused, right? And I had like so many weird ideas. Dave helped me understand a lot of stuff about that actually. And, and you know, I'm bringing it up because so many dudes, I don't sponsor a lot of women or anything, but so many dudes are so fucked up about that shit, the shit that we do. And we think it's so important and so relevant and it's just ends up not being, but you know, in my sponsor, I'm praying and I don't feel anything. And I'm just like, is this dude going to kiss me or something? Like what's going to happen now? Like, I don't even know. I was so fucked. Right. And then uh, step eight is like, look at all the people that fucked you over Right. But now you're going to go and literally apologize to the people you hate the most and give them money in some instances. Like, that's fucking crazy. That's absolutely crazy. And then the good news is the gift of all of it is now you get to go buy motherfuckers cigarettes and dinner and drive them to meetings <laughs> and give them the gift that you just got. Right. And here's the best part. You're going to be so happy. You're just going to be happy and laughing and going to meetings and probably never have sex with anyone again because you're so fucking lame now that like who is going to even want to have sex with you like for me the first thing in my mind when I came to AA was like I'm never having sex again how do you have sex with anyone unless you have drugs like for me dating was like having drugs and if you had drugs girls would find you and if you didn't have drugs <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't do anything so so I'm like asking people like is there any point? And, you know, in my fellowship, there was like very few girls that I went to. And I was just like, this is it. It's fucking, it's over. I'm going to die. You know, no more sex. And if these steps work, once I figured out what those were, I'll be a lame ass driving guys around, buying them cigarettes and dinner. That's my fucking, and I'll be so happy with that. Like who would even want that? Right. Who would even want that? And <clears throat> I say it in that way because <laughs> When you realize, right, when you're doing the steps and you realize, oh, fuck, like, I have to go and actually apologize to this person who robbed me or beat me up or whatever. I need to go approach this person and apologize to them for my part, right? It's like, it's a, it's a big moment where you're like, oh, fuck, this is real. I really have to do this. And, you know, um, here's the thing, man. Some of these guys I sponsor, one guy... He was 140 pounds. He was scratching himself. He couldn't stay sober. He looked like a fucking zombie. He kept using over and over again. And the guy in our men's stack who sponsors even the most hopeless said to me, why are you wasting your time on this guy? He's fucked. He's going to die. Right? That guy's my best friend in the world. He weighs 210 pounds. He is the best man at my wedding. And literally my best friend in the world. I can tell him anything even more than my sponsor. Cause if I call my sponsor and tell him some of the shit I'm thinking, he just goes like, that's no, don't do that. That's dumb. And then he, my best friend will say, well, Oh man, I don't know how you don't do that dumb shit. That's, that sounds good to me. You know, and I'm just like, I'm like, he's like, and if you hadn't helped me out, man, like, I'd be doing 100% dumb shit. I'm down to 50% dumb shit now. So I'm really grateful for you, man. He says shit like that to me. And for that day, that one day, I maybe can skip the dumb shit. Whatever I'm thinking. I need to tell somebody this or I need to say this to my wife. You know, I don't know about you if you're married, but like my mind is fucking obsessed with what I need to tell her. And 
for the most part, I'm really happy and I'm married and like, and I have four daughters that are 21, 18, 16, and 14. And like, I am a fucking hero, right? And it's because I shut my fucking mouth. I don't tell them so much shit that I actually think is important to tell them. With 28 years sober, I think they need to hear this. I need to say this. And then I fucking shut up. And I ask them shit like, oh, tell me more about that, sweetie. Oh, um, tell me how you feel about that. Oh, tell me more about that, literally. And they just think I'm great because I'm so supportive and I, I, I accept them and I listen to them and all this stuff. And, you know, I'm sharing that for, you know, Sean and other guys who are, are doing, a, be, being dads, right? Because like, for me, like me as a man in AA, it's the most important thing there is, right? It's like watching, watching children be safer because I hang out with some fucker I don't like and talk to him and spend time with him and do steps with him and take him to meetings and buy him dinner. And, you know, me personally, me, like I talk to wives in the book. It talks about um, talking to family members and involving yourself in their life, but not in a way to participate in quarrels. And I don't know how, I don't know. Maybe I have like five years now of like, I've not gotten into a quarrel and made things worse in a marriage or a relationship for about five years. I've, before that I did, I fucked up sometimes or I, you know, said something wrong or whatever, but, or pissed the wife off where they were mad at me. But for five years, right. I've been talking to wives, talking to girlfriends, talking to mothers, talking to sisters. And I think, you know, what's funny. It's because I joined Alan on seven years ago. That's why I'm really good at that. And you know, to, to hear like a wife tell me, I can't take it anymore. Fuck this guy. He's such an asshole. He comes home sober like there's a parade that's supposed to happen for him. And he wants the fucking kids to just be like, dad, you're home. Yay for dad. Right. And and tells me what to do and tells me what to cook and all this shit. And like, fuck him. I can't take it anymore. Right. And I'm just like, I'm like, OK, I hear you. And I called the dude and I'm like, hey, man, come over, bro. Come over. And he comes over and I get I never do it alone. I get like other guys who are married, who have relationships with kids. And we sit down and I go, look, bro, you're going to need a divorce attorney. And it's going to take years and it's going to be really painful. And it's never going to fucking end. It's never going to end. You're going to be fighting with her for the rest of your life that your children are alive, even if they're adults. And that's option A or option B is you need to change, right? And to like see that change happen, to see a guy go, okay, what do I do, right? Number one thing, shut the fuck up. Stop telling her shit. Just stop telling her shit right now. She doesn't need to know your opinion. She doesn't need to know what you think she should do. She's your wife, dude. Listen to her, right? And like to watch that happen, what it does is it makes homes where kids feel safe and secure and okay, and they're not concerned with adult problems because they get to have their lives and they get to be the center of attention, you know, for the most part until you close the door and get away from them. And so to watch that happen for me is the whole payoff. My best friend, he couldn't pick up his son because he was scared because he was so toxic and sick and hooked on drugs and alcohol that picking up his son, he felt like he was gonna harm him, right? And that turned into him having another son and him being like a really amazing father and being a dad that, that is respected. This guy is like, he's not here. You don't know any of my stag members, so I have no reason to lie to you. He's the guy that everyone looks up to. He's the guy that everyone thinks has all the answers. It's unreal to watch that happen, to watch a guy who's scratching himself and can't stop using become a respected member of society, a father, a husband, a son, and, and knowing his mom and seeing her after he got sober. And the first time I met her, having her come up with wet eyes and hold me and hug me and say, thank you for my son. You know, like, it's a privilege, man. It's a privilege to be the person who happens to be there, who happens to show up for AA and NAA to just be the one who gets that hug from a mom who has a son now, you know? And for me, when I came to AA, my mom and me, my mom was six weeks sober more than me. And 
She came to AA to get help from me. She came to AA because I was a deranged, violent lunatic, running the streets, selling drugs, fighting people. We would hit each other. My mom would hit each other all the time and steal each other's drugs and money and cars. I mean, literally, it was like a fucking bad movie. You know, it was terrible in our house. And to watch my mom change, you know, over the years in AA and to watch our relationship change to the last seven years of her life, we were best friends. We were actually best friends. We talked all the time and we bought a house in Joshua Tree together. We, you know, renovated that house and made it like a retreat for AA people and women and men's groups and women's groups and family and you know, to do that together with my mom was like unreal. We, I, we didn't have fucking food when I was growing up. My mom was a waitress and she was like on drugs and alcohol and a mess. She was absolutely a mess and beat the shit out of me my whole childhood. To go from that to my mom's house was one of the, there weren't millions of sober livings back in the 90s, right? Now there's so many programs, so many things. And I don't want to talk shit about programs because we're not supposed to do that. But fucking, give me a fucking break, man. Every place is an outpatient treatment center in leagues with the fucking piss test place. And everyone's on collusion, milking the recovery machine. And it's like, it's fine. But it's like, I just, sometimes I'm just overwhelmed with it, you know? So, so it's like, uh, but back then, there were halfway houses for prisoners. And there was a couple places I knew that you could live somewhere with other sober people. And my mom started this house. It was for women who were like survivors of domestic violence and sober, right? And she got her degree and she ran that house for 24 years and lived there and was like a counselor. And she didn't do it for profit. She charged rent and she made them make sandwiches and stuff for the Salvation Army. And she ran this like, this place, you know, and my mom went from being this woman to this pillar of AA in the community. And her kitchen table is like the kitchen table that Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob used. It's like that kind of table that many, many fist steps were heard and many, many lives were changed. And at her funeral, which was two years ago, she passed away from cancer. There were women that I'd seen with no fucking shoes missing teeth, walking the streets as prostitutes that were now attorneys with a husband and a family and, and like unbelievable transformations, you know? And we talk about it here, right? But here's the thing. When people say time doesn't matter, I say, get some. <laughs> because it does matter. Because here's the thing. I've got to see this movie play for a lot longer than people who've been here for a shorter time. Seven years is a long fucking time to stay sober, Sean. To me, it's amazing. Really, like, to stay sober for seven years in some ways, I think it's, like, harder than staying sober longer because it's so tumultuous and so hard and, like, you have to work so much harder to just make a living and stay sober and go to meetings and be a dad and all this stuff. And, like, you know... But man, seeing this movie play out and seeing people change and seeing their lives change is incredible. It's, it talks about it in the book and the vision for you. It says, this is an experience you will not want to miss, you know, and we don't want you to miss it. And to watch families come back together, you know, and uh, I met my wife, incidentally, I'm telling you this because this is sort of in the calm of like, you don't know what's going to happen. So be really nice everywhere you are. But I was at my sponsor's house when I was 19. My mom and her mom became best friends in AA. They were like newcomer chicks. And, you know, they stayed best friends and they lived together actually until my mom passed away. And my wife was um, her best friend's daughter. And at the time when I met her, there was no dating or anything. She was 11 and I was 19. And all these years later, five years ago, um, we came together and, and brought our two daughters each and made like this Brady Bunch with only girls situation. And, you know, um, <laughs> I mean, man, the shit I was thinking when I got sober, what was going to happen in my life? My sponsor asked me to make a list of uh, like what I wanted. He said, OK, if you get everything you want out of this, if the steps work, if there is a God, if you make your amends, you know, um, what do you want out of this? And I'm like, what do you mean? 
He's like, you know, magic fucking wand. Like, make a list of the things you want, right? And my wildest dreams, this is like six months sober, right? Was to have a girlfriend who was, and he made me be specific. He had me like edit it, who was a sexy seven. Because I, if I had a girl who was like a 10, then I thought I'd have to fight a lot of guys. And I didn't want to fight a lot of guys. And I wanted this, this car that was a broken down uh, 64 Cadillac in my mom's yard. had body rot and stuff. I wanted to fix it and put lights under it and put speakers in it and drive it, right? And drive around in this old Cadillac. And then I wanted a job and I wanted the job to be $20 an hour because that was the most I thought anybody could make it a job. It was like a lot of money in 1994. And um, that was it. That's all I dreamed of, right? And I mean, that doesn't sound that bad to me, those things, right? But like where my life is today, um, and I, I didn't used to talk about like success and stuff like that because I thought, you know, I had to pretend to be humble. But the thing is, my wife gives me this compliment all the time. And it's to me, it's the best thing. To me, it's the best compliment anyone could get. She says, there's no one I know who works harder on their ego than you because I have an ego problem, right? <laughs> but I do all this shit every day, almost like someone who takes insulin, right? To like combat my ego problem. And it's service in AA and it's service in the world because the whole idea of practicing these principles in all our affairs, it really works. The idea of sponsorship is mentorship, right? And you can take sponsorship and learning how to be a good sponsee and you can go learn how to ask for help from someone who knows how to do something you want to do, who knows how to get something you want to get, who knows how to be someone you want to be. And you can ask them to help you. And then here's the trick. This is really the part that people get fucked up on. You do what they tell you, even if you don't think it's going to work. And afterwards, you say, hey, that didn't work just right. Or, hey, these things did work. But I learned that in A. I learned that if you ask someone for help and you do what they tell you, that what can happen is miraculous things that you weren't planning, right? And so I've been doing that my whole life in sobriety and for 28 years. And I still have mentors. I still have people I look up to, right? But where I've gotten is I live in the Hollywood Hills. I'm an artist and um, I'm, I'm a furniture designer, but for like really sad rich people. And I have 30 employees. Um, I own my building in Hollywood. It's a big gallery. And then I bought another building for a production facility. And here's the cool thing about that. Like the people I have who work for me, I like I'm of service to them. Right. And like I dreamed for years about having a facility that was really clean and ecological and safe and like made a better working environment for them. Right. And I bought it in the neighborhood most of my workers live in so they didn't have to commute so far and so that they could be by their kids schools. And like, you know, AA taught me how to think this way that like I'm not here to have people be of service to me. I'm here to be of service to other people. And, and if you practice these principles, I don't know. I don't know how to say it. It just makes you look way better than you are because you're doing the right things. But my brain, if, if there was one full day that if people could read my thoughts, I would be fucking alone. My kids wouldn't talk to me. My wife would kick me out. My employees would quit. Like I would be done for. I, I was so obsessed when I was new with like, you know, keeping it real, like Dave Chappelle talks about, right? And like, you know, saying whatever the fuck I thought. And like, you know, that's just not the case. Like you are as, as smart as you are quiet, pretty much, I think. And, you know, I keep a lot of things that I'm thinking in. And, you know, um, my kids are wonderful. They really are wonderful. They absolutely drive me crazy. They're so woke, right? And I, I, I marched in the pride parade with Dave when I was like, you know, young, right? And that's not good enough for them. They're just so woke, right? That I'm a cisgender, white male, straight fucking asshole to them. And like, they just, they just berate me, right? Every day, they just berate me and they go on about all this stuff and how I don't know shit. And I'm just like, tell me more about that, sweetheart. Tell me, oh, really? Explain that to me, Right. And here's the cool part. Like, I actually learn a lot of shit from them because the world has gone forward and I have to keep being willing 
to be open-minded and the principles of the steps and the things you learn by doing it and the things you learn by doing it and practicing it over and over and over, right? They keep changing me because I'm willing, because I don't want to get stuck, right? My 16-year-old is uh, a mixed girl and she, her mom moved away and she's having a hard time. She's having a hard time with her identity, right? And so I had to double down and be like, you know what? I'm her white dad, but like, so what, man? I need to do shit with her for her cultural experience. And like, I took steps to do that. And I talked to her therapist and I talked to her doctor and I talked to the people at school and like, I talked to her. I'm involved. A teaches you like how to be involved in your life and how to be a member of your life in a really powerful way. And like all this magical stuff keeps happening, right? My stepdaughter's 14. She basically, her dad was like, you have to hate this guy because he's bad and, you know, your mom's a bitch and all, you know, all the stuff that divorced people do. I'm not going to pretend like I didn't do any dumb shit when I got divorced. I did. But, you know, it's incredible. I literally, I envision myself, right? Like with my fist, I make my fist into like love. And I just beat her with it. Just you fucking little and just love her like in the head, right? With my fist. And that's what I do. I do this thing where I like listen to her and talk to her and love her and keep doing it. And she's so shitty. She's not here. She went to Chicago. She was so shitty for so long, right? But I didn't care because I defeated her. I won like a war of love against her. And and she's cool. And she's one of my favorite people, right? And like to watch things continue to change the word amends, right? It's really a, it's a really misunderstood concept that we go make amends, which means like we go apologize to people. Right. So to make amends means to change like a constitutional amendment is a change. So some amends that are really hard, how much time do I have? You've got uh, seven minutes. Okay, perfect. So I'm going to talk about amends for the rest of my time. So it means to change. That's all it means. It doesn't mean to grovel. It doesn't mean to beg forgiveness or say sorry or apologize even. It means to change. So the simple ones are, you know, I stole something or I, whatever, I cheated on something or I did this or I did that, right? It's simple. Those ones are like simple. You can go and you can make the change by giving back what you took from somebody by apologizing or doing whatever. But I'm going to talk about the hard ones, the really hard amends, the ones that don't make any sense, the ones that for me, stayed with me for so long and so many years of sobriety that well-meaning sponsors didn't know what to tell me, right? I was molested by a bunch of girls when I was like four and five years old, older girls who were, you know, 13, 14. And, and um, it messed me up and it messed me up in ways I didn't understand. I didn't know what to do about it. And I wrote it on my four step and I told my sponsors and I told therapists and, you know, certain guys were like, oh, you're a lucky kid. You got to have sex with girls and stuff, you know, and and for so long, it was like, if you eat a bunch of bread and you don't have any water and you swallow it down and you have like a lump in your throat that you can't swallow, it was like this emotional lump in my throat that I couldn't swallow, that I couldn't get down. I didn't understand. I didn't even have feelings about it, right? And what happened was I heard this woman speak in AA about being um, kidnapped by a guy from AA and tied up, held hostage, raped for a couple of days. And she was absolutely fucked up by this, right? And he got arrested, went to jail and the trial took years, right? And for those years, she couldn't sleep without the lights on and the TV on and she lived in fear, right? And she heard someone talk about making amends to an abuser. And she said, you know, I wanna do anything to feel differently about this, right? So she went to court. And when he was sentenced, she talked to his family and she talked to him and she shared with his family. She found a way to have empathy for him. And she shared to his family that she was sorry that they didn't get to have their son and their brother and their father anymore. And she was really sad about that for them. And she just shared what she came up with that she was able to feel to share some empathy with this person who had really harmed her. And after she did that, she slept and she didn't have to have the TV on. And that sounded pretty good to me, right? So I saw this girl on Facebook that was one of the girls who had molested me when I was young. 
And I was like, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do because we're not supposed to tell people, hey, you harmed me or you did this to me, right? Because part of our step is that you're not supposed to harm people, right? But it's really weird. Like, what do I do, right? So I just reached out to her and I said, hey, do you remember me? Because she was my sister's friend and I was around her a bunch. She was like, of course I remember you. How are you? Da, da, da. Turns out life had done her pretty bad because she was molesting me because she was being molested and lived in a crazy house and all this stuff. And she was living in like Missouri somewhere, working at a warehouse, just really struggling, you know? And I just said, you know what? I'm just going to talk to her. I'm just going to say hello and how are you and talk to her about the past. And my sister had passed away from drugs and alcohol at the age of 36. And she was a homeless prostitute, my sister. And she was that way since I was 10, you know? And so we talked about that. And one day I just kept talking to her. I don't know. I just kept talking to her and saying, I'm going to be of service. I don't know how. Right. And one day she said, why do I, she was really sad. And I said, what's wrong? What's wrong? She said, why do I, why am I with these men who hit me? Why am I in these situations that I keep finding myself in? Why do I do this? I'm so stupid, you know, like that kind of thing. And I said, you know, I don't know about you, but I was, as a child, I had a lot of things happen to me that shouldn't happen to a child. I had a lot of things happen that, that affected me and changed me, you know? And she was like, yeah. I said, did that happen to you? And she said, yeah. And I said, do you want help? And she said, I do. And I said, okay, let me, let me call you back. And I went online and I looked up a bunch of rehab facilities, right? And I had done writing on this. This wasn't, I didn't wing it. I had done writing on this. I had written it all out like we do. And I was talking to my sponsor and I, I, uh, I found this place and I called him up. I wrote an email. I said, I'm Thomas. I'm a member of AA. I was molested by this girl. She's doing this. I'm trying to find a way to make amends and to change my narrative about this. And I wrote this letter and I sent it. And this woman called me. It was on Friday. And she said, hey, we, I got your email. The director isn't here, um, but she's going to want to talk to you. Can she call you on Monday? And I said, sure. And so I called the woman back and I said, hey, I'm, I'm working on something. And I continued to talk to her. Monday came and the director called me and she said, hey, we've never seen anything like this. We've never read a letter like that from someone like you. And she said, it's, it really touched us and it's really beautiful that you're trying to help this person, right? And she said, you know, they're a mental health facility for battered women who have mental illness and addiction issues and they're inpatient, right? And she said, look, I said, look, I, I don't, I'm not rich where I can do whatever I want, but if I can put some money towards her treatment, I would be willing to do that, you know? And she said, I want you to know that she's welcome to come here for treatment for no charge, you know? And, um, that did something to me, you know, it just did something to me. It was like profound, you know? And when I called that woman and I told her about that, you know, to hear her tears and to hear her cry, I was now in a different position. I was on a new footing in life. I wasn't a little boy who's molested by an older girl anymore. I was a grown ass man who was trying to be a service, you know? And it changed me. And the last one I wanna share about is, well, my mom. So my mom, you know, the reason we sponsor people, right? The reason we sponsor people uh, is because they remind me of shit that my brain has blocked out that I've done wrong, basically. That's really what it comes down to. And like, you know, there was this kid and he had like two rich lesbian moms and he was just so fucking sad and pissed off that he was like a boy with these two lesbian moms. And he would come to meetings and he would take Ubers and you know, they just give him money to go to meetings, right, all the time. And at one point, I'm sponsoring this kid, and I go, man, you're just always using your moms for shit. Like, why don't you take the bus? Or, you know, I don't know. I was giving him shit, right? I don't know what happened, but I was giving him shit. I say, I say you know what? Like, you're using your mom. And then I realized in that moment that I crashed four of my mom's cars when I was younger, right? Not all of it was drunk. It was just I was a shithead kid, and I fucking stole their car and crashed it. And, you know, um, I realized like I have to do something about this. And I was thinking about it. I wasn't doing anything. I was thinking and my mom calls me a week later. She goes, hey, I know you're going to get rid of that car. Could I buy it from you? I'm like, fuck, right? Like, now, now what am I going to do, right? It's like AA teaches me how to have a, a second conscience almost. Like my own conscience and this other thing, right? 
So I took that car in and I bought her a brand new Prius and I took it to her and I, it was in the AA parking lot at this meeting. And I was, I got a big box to carry it out. And I said, here, take my keys and let me take this to the car. And I took her out and I gave her this car and I gave it to her and I said, mom, I love you. And like, I crashed your cars when I was a kid. And I just really want you to have this car. And my mom would fucking stop the mailman and tell him about her car. My mom was so proud of that car, you know? And when my mom died, I gave it to my aunt who wanted to buy it for me, of course. <laughs> right. And I gave it to her because she had helped take care of my mom. And like, you know, I found over and over people tell me a lot that I'm too generous. And it's like, you know, I say, look, man, I hear you. I appreciate it. You may be right. Okay. But as soon as I start going down, I want you to grab me and say, okay, now stop giving it away. Stop doing stuff for people. Stop doing makeovers for guys who have two years and can't get a date and their hair's fucked up and their teeth are fucked up. Right. Stop doing this. They don't, you don't need to do that. Right. So stop me as soon as I start going down, but man, I've had tough times in sobriety, but it just keeps getting better. The more I give it away, it just keeps getting better. And if you don't believe me, try it and call me and say, Hey, I lost everything. I was too generous. I was too loving. I was too kind. Call me and tell me about it, please. So I'll stop preaching this shit. But that's how my experience is. It keeps getting better. My mom, when she passed away, she had cancer and it was terrible. It was during, during COVID. It was absolutely terrible. I couldn't touch her for a year. And until I knew she was going to die of cancer, I couldn't touch her. And for the last three weeks of her life, I was there and it was fucking terrible. There was nothing wonderful about watching someone you love die. It was so terrible. I say this because it's important to tell you, like, the movies are not right. That's not what the fuck happens. People drown in their own stuff, and it's really bad, right? And here's the thing. When my mom, when I knew she was going to die, but she wasn't at the end yet, I went in, and I just grabbed her arm like this, you know, and I got down low to her bed, and I looked at her, and I said, Mom, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of the life that you've had, right? And she said, we did it, Thomas. We did it. And I knew what she meant. We've been redeemed. We come from these creatures, these horrible creatures who hurt each other and did drugs and stole and lied and all this shit. And we become members of society, people who gave way more than we took. We've been redeemed. Redemption is a thing we don't talk about all the time, but we've been redeemed. And here's the thing. That time. Yeah, it's okay. it's just about nine o'clock. Okay, that's fine. All I want to say, last thing I want to say is that, you know, um, I'll never know what it was like to not have been there. I don't know that. And I'll never regret being there. So thanks for letting me share.